This morning we'll continue uh, and actually temporarily end or suspend, but we'll pick it up sporadically, uh, a series on uh, the saints. So the things that we've been saying and singing uh, make sense in that context. And uh, some folks that we've uh, focused in on, uh, if you remember back, we started and we had uh, Jonathan Wilson Hargrove talking about the local saint of Ann Atwater. Uh, we, we also um, talked about uh, 20th century saint uh, from Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Last week, Christian talked about a, a contemporary musician named Rich Mullins. And uh, this morning, we're going to skew kind of our all of our averages with an outlier of a 4th century saint named Macrina. So I'm going to invite Abby Wilson to come and read our scripture from Colossians 1. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation, because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible. Whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn from among the dead, so that he might occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens. He brought peace through the blood of his cross. Every superhero has an origin story. Um, I'm not the hugest superhero person, so don't come up to me and expect me to talk about the intricacies of the Avengers or Justice League or who's in what, because I can't keep them straight. But I know that every superhero has an origin story. It's normally some like great event or great wound that sets the course for their super life, right? Like, until that spider bite, Peter Parker was just this kind of nerdy kid, right? Tony Stark was taken captive by while demonstrating his engineering genius. Bruce Banner was poisoned by radiation. And that little boy heir to the Wayne fortune saw his family murdered in that alley, and everything else changed after that. M that might be the, uh, the like, most poignant superhero origin story of Batman. As a result, each of these varied events and adversities comes a new person, uh, a new person with kind of new powers, and some of the ways that they deal with that are kind of funny, like the first time Peter Parker starts spitting webs out of his uh, wrist, right, and he has to come to grips with what this means, and they all journey towards how to understand these powers to be used towards good. That's part of every one of these superhero stories. So don't get me wrong, though. One of the purposes of the series that we've been on, called Y'all Saints, talking about um, these lives of holy ones in Christ, is to profile these people at various times in various places, responding to their own varied callings in ways that make uh, good on their, their own God-gifted uh, and unique personalities and gifts things. And so in this way, we should see 
ourselves. We should start to see ourselves in them. And we should also start to see in them a really unique portrait of Christ's likeness. Um, Smithsonian Magazine had a quote about superhero origin stories and said, at their best, superhero origin stories inspire us and provide models of coping with adversity, finding meaning in loss and trauma, and discovering our strengths and using them for good purposes. This is something uh, that is happening when we look at these lives of the saints. There shouldn't be more space between us and them. There should actually become less and less space between us and them. Because while some of these characters aren't like officially saints, some of them are, and they, they all really are saints. They've been made saints in Jesus because of the Spirit and God's grace. And that also means that you and I are and can be saints, holy ones in Christ, ones growing in Christ-likeness in a very specific way so that the fullness of God dwells in each of us. So when I talk about saints and superheroes, don't think of these big blockbuster movies. Like that's what superhero films are good for, right? Is uh, these big popcorn blockbusters, right? With a lot of explosions and CGI. Think instead more of like the 826 company, which has all these sites started in San Francisco, but the one in Brooklyn has a storefront called the Brooklyn Superhero Supply Company. And it looks something like this. And this is kind of a semi-real thing. They actually sell superhero supply things that you'd need to be your garden variety working superhero. But it's also an elaborate, like a purposely, absurdly elaborate facade for a tutoring service. It, it even, you go through the showroom of all the capes and masks and uh, utility belts, and then there's the secret door that you go to get tutored, right? And I think the punchline in all this is that common kids and common volunteers already have everything they need to be truly super. And that the true superpower exists in normal day-to-day -day concrete collaborative work of giving each other to, giving ourselves to each other. And so that's what's happening at the Brooklyn Superhero Supply Company. And I think, <coughs> uh, when I think of our saint today, Macrina, I think of her in this kind of every way superhero, so everyday superhero sort of way. She is super in a very specific kind of Jesus way. We find most of what we know about St. Macrina, not from a book that she wrote <coughs> or a lot of sermons or speeches that she gave, mostly from her younger brother's book, The Life of Macrina. It was potentially the first ever biography written about a woman. Think about that. Think about that, what that says about uh, that culture and every culture before's um, value and ability to see um, something good and worthy of creating history and biography around them. That, that in, in the fourth century after uh, Jesus was the first time we get a biography of a woman. Macrina was the eldest child of Amelia and Basil the Elder. There were, I think, nine children in that family. And she was born in the year 329 in Cappadocia, which is Greece, uh, Asia Minor. She was named after her grandmother. That's often how these uh, younger elder things worked, either by parents or grandparents. And she grew up in a really devout family and a family of some kind of means and prestige. They had servants in their house. Uh, in fact, 
it's noted that her mother <coughs> uh, chose to forgo normal classical education for Macrina um, for some sort of like uh, formation around scripture, around Christian scripture. In this is in the fourth century. So this is almost like a fourth century like proto-Christian homeschooling that's happening for Macrina, right? It's interesting. Um, being the eldest, Macrina helped her mother raise her younger brothers, and some of these were names that might stick out if you started to, to study church history. Um, uh, saint, uh, saints and bishops like Basil and Gregory of Nyssa, those were her little brothers. And uh, as was common at the time and in her culture, her father arranged for her to be married to a young man when she was in her, her mid-teens. Somewhere during their engagement to be married, her fiancé died. Um, this set Macrina on a course, a course of life and a course of vocation to voluntary singleness and celibacy. Once her fiancé died, she didn't try to get another one. Um, it's a kind of important to pause here uh, because if that's all you know about Macrina, um, that can create some pretty uh, wild expectations for, for not only who she was, but also what her life represents. So first off, it's worth noting that the fourth century in fourth century Greece, there were some pretty particular constructs around uh, gender. But it, it's also important that we lean in and pay attention to the ways that we might expect this story to go in ways that it doesn't really go that way, in ways that we see these little subversions and notes of agency. Like, albeit for different reasons then and there as here and now, um, this move that she made towards this lifelong singleness and celibacy was pretty extreme. Like, there's not, uh, I'll speak for myself, I don't know many people who have done this uh, aside from a, a, a person or two that I know have gone into the priesthood. Uh, this sort of monastic lifestyle is, is pretty rare and pretty extreme, then as it is now. Nobody would have faulted Macrina for being set up with another suitor. In fact, that's probably what her dad wanted. It was probably more normal. The fact that Macrina chose for herself and answered God's call in this specific way shows us that this might not be like the paradigm, the thing that you take from her life, but um, her lifestyle that she chose in this is certainly a viable paradigm. Uh, I think we need to take that um, from uh, how she lived her life of faithfulness. I realize I say this as a married guy with a slew of kids, um, but the picture of the single life as a vocation from Macrina's life is, is not a life of loneliness or failure or not enoughness. Her single not, her single uh, life of celibacy was actually like a room-making, like spacious vocation. She didn't have much of an imagination that this life that she was taking on was going to be a too small life. Actually, she needed to be single in order to embrace this life of community that she was going to form. The Christian tradition, even from pretty early, um, has, this, has a hand in forming, and she is part of forming this tradition pretty big imagination for how singleness works in the kingdom of God and how singleness might actually be like the primary lifestyle with room enough for the work of worship and hospitality and community building that God has in store for God's saints. So another thing to note is why Macrina chose this life. Macrina has really specific reasons to be single, to be celibate. 
One is a now reason. Like, after she went this path, she went directly towards forming monastic communities. And there was a lot of, a lot kind of in the water at those times in the fourth century. There were the um, desert uh, fathers whom um, <coughs> Jonathan spoke about, who fled the wreckage of the society that they saw around them and went into the, the deserts, especially in Egypt, uh, to form these like um, uh, kind of uh, hermit lifestyles alone and apart with God. Um, mostly as a sign and a symbol against a culture of consumption and corruption. And then there were, were these like Cenobitic um, communities where they did life with God together. And, and that was more of the flavor of, of what Macrina was into and was, was forming. So she made a now uh, reason decision uh, to, to live single because she wanted to live with others in community. Um, with other uh, around her women, but also <coughs> a colony of men too. And so she converted her house um, into a common home for prayer and work, and residents held all things in common, food and clothing. She also had another reason for this that was a more like to come reason. She had a, a now reason and she had a reason to come. That Macrina's faith was built on the hope of the resurrection. So and this resurrection was Jesus's primarily, <coughs> but it was also hers and her fiance's. When her fiance died, she didn't seek another um, fiance because she trusted that her fiance would be risen and she would be united with him. So it's this deferred hope, this expectation towards the future. She was, in some sense, um, not, not like in a mode of uh, sweet by and by or, or this like distant future, this was actually like a really present future. She was already living in a really expansive and unden unending version of life and she was living that now. For, for people like Macrina, they understand that eternal life doesn't start when we die. Eternal, eternal life by definition has, um, uh, is eternal in both directions, right? It starts now and it goes forever. So she knew that the bulk of her coming existence would be met and filled and fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the meantime, Macrina wasn't settling. Her life following the death of her fiancé was deeply coherent with the expectations she had for a life of prayer and formation and faith and hope and love in the past. She knew her best life now was grounded in God's eternal life, meaning like her sorrow wasn't going to now define her future. That's a, a, that's a really beautiful thing I think we can learn, both her now reasons that are kind of practical, but her hope-grounded reasons towards the future. Our scripture today that Abby read comes from the beginning of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's this great Christ-exalting hymn, and I think Macrina's life explicates it a little bit further for us. For one, Colossae was just a couple hundred miles due west of Cappadocia, and many of the same cultural forces were driving these great cities, and at the center of Paul's hymn is this proclamation that Jesus images the invisible God. That when you look at Jesus, you see what God is and what God is like, who God is. That all the fullness of God lives in Jesus. And that Jesus holds all of this together. 
from creation to new creation, and that Jesus' resurrection from the dead makes him first. So this makes him in all things first. These are bold proclamations, especially in a Roman, uh, Greco-Roman culture that's steeped in kind of uh, Platonism that is kind of all too okay with deferring reality to some distant form or idea. Paul is declaring that reality has come in Jesus, that God has come. Not only that, we need to pay attention to how God comes in humility and proximity and weakness in death. Only for all of those things that we experience, that we often try to avoid, that we fear, all of these things are taken up and transformed by Jesus being raised from the dead. This hopeful new reality changes everything. It's now the glue for the fabric of the universe when things feel like they're falling apart. Jesus holds all things together. All things are held together in Christ. Can you see this in Macrina's simple life of choosing celibacy and building monastic communities? As her young life and future was seemingly falling apart, she looked to Jesus to hold it all together And she trusted in the spirit and the reordering power of the resurrection to give her what she would need in the meantime. Her embrace of this life in the formation of a female monastic community was also, it was so appealing. It it wasn't a plan B. It was so appealing that it influenced her brother Basil to join her on the other side of the river and to begin a parallel community for men too. Her, her life was a seed for more um, vocations of fidelity. This became a really powerful spiritual training ground for Basil and for their family grand, uh, friend, Gregory Nazianzus, both of whom became prominent bishops and theologians. Another reason this passage seemed really appropriate for Macrina was just how dense its theological formulations are about God. During Macrina's life, was this really key time for the Christian church, following the like unheard of conversion of a R- Roman emperor, uh, Constantine. There was this first ecumenical council for church leaders, was called in 325, called the Council of Nicaea. This was four years between uh, before Macrina was born. In an attempt to gain some consensus amidst a bunch of tensions and disagreements about how to talk about who Jesus was and his relationship to God the Father, the result was something um, that we would know as the, the Nicene Creed, if, if anyone grew up in a, a more traditional um, liturgical church. When we say the Ni- Nicene Creed, it's something from the fourth century. Um, and the first line is, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. You hear some of the parallels with Colossians here. While Macrina nor her brothers were part of the council, but they, her brothers would author the next council in, Capita, or in um, um, uh, Constantinople. They, they became the next generation of bishops, and by their own omission, Macrina was a key influence to not only um, how they prayed, but also how they thought about God. She, she, she was always in dialogue with her brothers, e- even though she never um, made the byline of authoring these things. It's, it's pretty remarkable when you, when you think about it, especially for the time. I love to think about her life of faithfulness, 
her words and her life, how um, they were spent making visible the invisible God, even just in her really important family. Imaging God's presence through unceasing prayer and work and hospitality and community. That these, these were almost like the decoder ring for what faithful Christology looks like in real life. So her brothers are, are spending all this time in, in libraries uh, creating these um, theological treatises and they're, they're thinking back of what it looked like when they saw someone who really understood who God was and, and what God looks like. Um, against some of the Arian opponents at Nicaea who thought Jesus uh, was not one with the Father and not part of creating the universe, Macrina's life of self-sacrifice and community and her trust in the creativity and sovereignty of Jesus shows more than it tells. And, and it shows what would become how we, we talk about God as being one with the Father, firstborn of all creation. Macrina's life then has this huge footprint of influence. I'm sorry if you hadn't heard of her before today or, or uh, before this week's email. But she has this huge footprint of influence that's far greater than most of us would recognize. While having learned faith from her mother, in later life, the way that she followed God in costly ways, ways that would cost her everything when she died, she, she had one uh, garment and that's it. She, she didn't die with riches or possessions. She died in community. Um, later in life, her mother was influenced by her faith. Amelia wound up giving up everything she had and joining her in this community, along with all of her former slaves and servants. And so um, when we read a, a letter like Paul's letter uh, to Philemon about Onesimus, and the expectation from Paul is that, um, <coughs> is that uh, Philemon let uh, not only let Onesimus free, but that the, the, that uh, Onesimus might become, quote, more than a brother to uh, Philemon. Um, that's what's happening here in this fourth century community. These slaves are becoming sisters, and they're living in simplicity and mutuality. Um, she also influenced her brothers from alongside and from under, as they would become the church fathers who would pass a deep and beautiful Trinitarian faith. She was known as the fourth Cappadocian, right? As she influenced her monastic colleagues by welcoming them, <coughs> by serving with them. She influenced her younger brother, Peter, by essentially becoming his mother when their mother would die. So we see from Akrina that a saint's life is a lot like yeast. It leavens in every direction. If you've ever kneaded a ball of dough, it, it's undiscernible where that rising action is coming from. It's not just from the bottom, it's not from the top or sides, it's, it, it's in the middle and it, and it expands in every direction. And, and we see that in Macrina's life. It's often slowly, it's often unexpectedly, but she influences up and down and sideways. In her life we see a sign and symbol and instrument of God's faithfulness and sovereignty. Even in the new and forming environment of Christendom, which is like uh, Christianity without stigma or persecution for the first time in early history. M Macrina was, was born into this environment, this forming societal Christianity, but she also provides a witness to a different way, not of comfort, not of conformity, 
but of the cross and of the risen Christ. So thinking back to the superhero thing, what is, which was Macrina's origin story? Maybe the death of her fiance, that's kind of the obvious, <coughs> the obvious wound. But maybe it was also just in the training in the face she received from her devout mother. That's, uh, that's something, um, her, her, her movement towards a monastic lifestyle and community wasn't altogether a break with this really normal training in the faith that she had. And what was her superpower? Was it the ability to live chastely? Or was it just like the steadfast willingness to image the invisible God and the hope of the resurrection in the dailiness of life and community? And to have like leaven-like influence on those around her. I think that's the beautiful thing about the superpowers of the saints. Is sometimes it's something really spectacular that feels like it's altogether different than, than what we have access to. But most of the time it's something really common. It's stringing together day-by-day day faithfulness, all founded in the life and fidelity of Jesus. You can see this is where the superhero archetype gets kind of complicated for the saint. Christ the king, who images the invisible God, who existed before all things and all things are together in him, who is the firstborn from among the dead from the beginning, and now occupies first place in everything. This Jesus who contains the fullness of God and has reconciled everything by the cross, this means these spectacular things all happen in, in really common and often surprising ways. That, that the presence of the cross at the end of all that cosmic formulation means that, that when, we, when we look to God for, for, um, for God's rule on this Christ uh, the King Sunday, when we look for God for power, we often get this strange sort of sovereignty, the sovereignty of death and vulnerability in this resurrection power. This means that our eyes and our hearts always need to be open, that Christ is always at work calling and forming saints, even ones like you and I, even folks with like one big traumatic moment in their life which changed the whole course of their life and plans, if that's you, you're still being called to be a saint. That, that actually might be the thing that, that helps God um, form a witness to God's strength in your weakness. Even for folks with all the privileges of a decent upbringing, like Macrina, even you, like even if you don't have a big, spectacular rock-bottom salvation story. God is still calling you to be a saint. Even folks that have none of that privilege, then you might not have a big explosive event, but you also didn't have any of these privileges. God's calling you to be a witness. Even folks who can't speak or don't have prominence or power in any real way because of forces and factors bigger than them, God is calling you to be a saint. You might not even need words. Your, your life, your body can be a witness. Even folks who are being called to big, hard things, and I would say a life of single celibacy would count as a big, hard thing. God is calling you and will equip you for these big, hard things. Even folks who are being called for small, constant, hard things, which is 
in my experience, being a parent or being a spouse, right? Small, constant, hard things. God is calling you to be a witness. Even folks who are lonely, God is calling you to be a witness. Even folks who are steeped in community and are surrounded by more people than they know what to do with, God is also calling you to be a witness. Even you and even me. Y'all pray with me. Father, we thank you for this witness, your daughter, Macrina, the Holy One in Cappadocia. We thank you for um, the things that were written about her, and, and um, uh, especially because they give us an idea of all the things that weren't written about her or weren't written by her, uh, the shape of her life, um, which was um, built around and on top of your faithfulness. Uh, a life that was seeking to become less that you might become greater, a life that was seeking uh, to know you better and to embody your love and calling more. Uh, Lord, inspire us by the same spirit that filled uh, Macrina, the same spirit that made her holy. Um, let that spirit inspire us, fill us, make us holy. Uh, thanks uh, for... Uh, your calling. Thanks for the ways that it is uh, way too big for us. Thanks for the ways that it is really small and requires a lot of our attention and patience. Thanks for the ways that you make uh, all of that possible. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.